Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today's message continues through the book of Ecclesiastes. And this morning we will attempt to address the greatest question that the book has to offer. How ought we live in light of unavoidable death? What we will discover is that the teacher of Ecclesiastes has examined every modern, popular, humanistic philosophy and has come to the same conclusion of vanity, thereby forcing us to look above the sun to define our hope in the one that God has sent as the way, the truth, and the life. Thanks for joining with us as we seek to address the questions that are posed by death, but only answered by God. Well, this past week, as we were in Kentucky on the art trip, I have been there a couple of times before, but for most of our people, this was their first time there. Because we had all the kids with us, one of the very first places the kids wanted to go was not in the ark, as magnificent as it was. Some of the little ones wanted to go to the virtual reality experience that they had, because, you know, kids, that's what they're all about. Well, I found as I was waiting over there with a couple other parents that Don McDonald and I uh, we're sitting next to one another. We got to we got to chatting and had a great great conversation. And then as the kids made their way out, just with eyes so big, having the best time, we got up and headed into the ark. Except uh, I noticed that Don was walking in the wrong direction. And so I, I having been there before, said if you wanted to go in the entrance, because maybe she was headed for the gift shop. I don't know. Maybe that's where she wanted to go. But I said if you're looking for the entrance, you're going to have to go around this way. And she said thank you so much. Now how how was it that I was able to be a help there? simply because I had walked there before. I, had, I, knew, I knew the layout better than those who were there for the first time. Um, this past week, uh, or I'm sorry, just even yesterday, we went to um, Bruce and Cheryl's uh, 50th uh, wedding anniversary in Scandia. Now, I've never been to Scandia be- before, but on the way driving back, I thought, you know what? We took all these back roads through Ralph and all these tiny little nature roads. I bet I could navigate my way back without any help or assistance from my wife's GPS. So I told her, look, I'm going to try to spot my way back, but if I if I make a wrong turn, you got to let me know. Who thinks she let me know? <laughs> oh, y'all think she did. She didn't. She let me keep driving for like a quarter mile before she whispered, you missed the turn. Now, why, why did I miss the turn? Well, because I had never been there before. I, I had questions as to where I should turn, and I needed help. It'd be easy if somebody had been there before. I could follow them, just like Don did at the Ark with me, who had been there before. One of the greatest questions of life that every single person has is, what happens to you after death? What happens to you? Without God... And the book of Ecclesiastes that we're studying is asking the question of what is life like without God? But without God, all you have are questions. Seeking to navigate your way on your own. Trying to make it with the best you can, but never actually knowing what lies ahead. Unless you can follow somebody who has been there before. Unless you and I can attach ourselves to the man, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the man who came from heaven and ascended back to heaven, who has conquered death. Unless you follow Jesus, you will be lost on this, the greatest question that plagues all people in all places for all time, the question of death. 
As we are in this study that I've entitled Chasing After the Wind, we're doing an overview and um, study through the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to do just a very quick review as to where we were last Sunday, and then to set us up for what we're going to try attempt to do this morning, which is answering the biggest question of all. Um, it's kind of like when I uh, get a cheeseburger, uh, I always want to take the biggest bite first, right? Anybody else with me? That's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to try to take the biggest bite first out of Ecclesiastes. But before we do, just as a point of review, you might remember that the message we talked about last week was identifying that God has made both the good times and the bad times. That is not a message that you hear very often today. Unfortunately, that is not a message that is preached very often today. Unfortunately, all you hear is good times, good times, good times. The reality is God has made them both and God has made them both for a purpose. You might be familiar with the song, um, To Every Season, Turn, Turn. Is that how it goes? Chris, do you know who, who sings that? Who sings? Is it the birds? To every season, turn, turn. I'm botching it, but you get, you've heard it. You know the one I'm talking about, right? Um, this actually comes right out of the book of Ecclesiastes. If you look in chapter 3, you'll find verbatim the lyrics to that song. There is a time for every season. For every activity under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, on and on and on. Uh, I want to point out to you, the reason why this is in the book of Ecclesiastes is not to teach you that, you know what, it's okay, there's a time for every season. It's instead to teach you that God is the one who has appointed a time to every season. Not simply that there is, but that God is the designer behind them. And if you were to look and examine, and we're not going to do that this morning, but if you, if you wanted to, just even as homework or your own uh, devotional time, you can go line by line, and what you will discover through this part in chapter 3 is that each one is a comparison on the opposite end of the spectrum. A time to be born and a time to... You can fill in the blank, right? Because we're looking at both of those. God has made them both. A few other things that we looked at last Sunday was making sure that we understand the perspective of the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes. And so there's a phrase that's spoken again and again and again. It's called under the sun. I looked under the sun. I examined, I set my heart to wisdom to look and pay attention to everything that's happening under the sun. That phrase means I set my heart to examine with wisdom a life lived without God. God, we believe, is above the sun, and so as we look into the heavens, that's where God lives. But what if there was no God? What if God did not exist? What if all we had was what we see under the sun? And that's the perspective for the whole book of Ecclesiastes. I want to offer that as a reminder so it will help us to make sense as we examine the subject of death today. One last reminder from last Sunday. You'll remember we covered the very beginning. Where the, where the teacher says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is utterly meaningless. And then he repeats that same phrase again at the end of the book. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. This word meaningless comes from the Hebrew word hevel, which means just vain striving. Remember I told you it was like my daughter going up the escalator, the wrong escalator, right? You're just working and working and working, but you're never making any progress. That's what that word meaningless means. And so the conclusion of it all that we covered last Sunday comes at the very end of the book, which says, here's the conclusion of the matter. After all has been heard, here is the full duty of man. You are to fear God and keep his commandments. And we saw that what that means is putting God back into our lives. 
We need to live as though God does exist. And this is the only way that you and I can find meaning in our life. I showed a couple of videos last Sunday because I wanted you to hear, even from the atheist perspective, the person who does not believe there's a God lines up toe for toe, foot for foot, step for step in the writer of Ecclesiastes for the, for the conclusion it's meaningless. Do you remember the question? Is there any purpose to the universe? What does the atheist say? Is there any objective purpose to the, to the universe for the atheist? The answer is no, there isn't. And if there is no purpose, that means there is no afterlife. If there's no afterlife, it means that there is no hope in our world. And as, as bad as that sounds, that's what we're seeking to study, to show ourselves, to give ourselves the reminder of needing to make sure you don't accidentally go through this life living as though you're only under the sun. For there is a God. And there is a God who will bring into judgment everything that has been done, whether good or bad. And this God has loved you so much to send his son as the one who has conquered through death to draw you and I into a new life lived to honor and please the true living God. That's our review. Today, we're going to attempt to look at the subject of death. And I also mentioned last week that there's kind of circles of thought. So we have a few verses we're going to look through. As we do, we're going to turn and we're going to find that the writer of Ecclesiastes was way ahead of his time. In fact, for every single one of the observations we find, we will recognize it attaches, it identifies itself with a contemporary understanding of philosophy. Now, I know most of you today were really hoping that you were going to come to church and the pastor was going to talk about philosophy. I know most of you were like, yes. We're talking about philosophy in church today. And one or two of you are like, oh man, we got to find a different church. <clears throat> That's okay. That's okay. Hang on. Hang on with me through this because um, I, what, what I really want you to see is that the way in which philosophy today has sought to answer the same question is actually really ancient. This is not a, th- these are not new. The conclusions that people have come up with are not new. They are found in the in the Old Testament by the writers of those who, who knew and heard from God. With that in mind, um, we're going to start in chapter 2. I'm going to uh, read one of the quick passages, sh- tell us the philosophy that's attached to it, and then we'll move on through those and we'll conclude with some observations and conclusions at the end. <clears throat> start with me in chapter 2 of the book of Ecclesiastes, looking in verse 12. The teacher says, Then... I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man like the fool will not long be remembered. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. Okay, so here's the first place where death shows up in the 
in the evaluation of looking under the sun, and you can see that the teacher says, you know what, I'm going to pay attention to what's better. What's better, foolishness or wisdom? What do you think? Which of those is better? Raise your hand if you think foolishness is better. Raise your hand if you think wisdom is better. I almost saw that, Lucas. I was too close on that one. That's right. Wisdom is clearly better, except as soon as he makes that conclusion, he realizes, except what happens to the both? The, The wise man and the fool, they both end up the same. There's no difference between them. And so here's the first thing I want to show you. If you're following along in your sermon notes, you'll have a blank right under observations. And that's to be filled in that fate can only ask questions. Fate does not have answers. Fate can only ask more questions. And the question that we find written here in this first uh, section in chapter 2 is this question, what can be gained by being wise? You'll see that in verse 15. The writer asks the question, what then do I gain by being wise? There's a philosophy that follows from this. The philosophy is called egoism. If you wanted to write that down, egoism. Ego here being the idea, who's the most important person in the world? Me, myself, and I. And egoism asks the question that unless this has utilitarian benefit to me, personal self-interest, I'm not going to pursue it. I'm only going to pursue that which benefits me. That's a philosophy called egoism. And you can see it showing up right here in verse 15. What then do I gain by being wise? And so you may come to the conclusion, simply as the teacher does here, that, you know what, live it up then, right? If both go to the same place, if there's nothing to be gained, if I have no personal stake and interest in pursuing wisdom, live it up. I might as well act like the fool. That's the conclusion that you see happening under the sun. Let me ask you the question. Do you see evidence of this in our world today? Does anyone see evidence of this as something that's being um, offered to young people today? Uh, YOLO, do you guys know what that means? You Come on, you old. Thank you, thank you. Got some, some Gen Xers in church here. Uh, yes, YOLO, you only live once. Now you would think, That wisdom applied to that statement would make you want to protect that which you only get once. But that's not how it's used today. How do kids use it today on Facebook? They use it to justify the foolish type of behavior so that they can have these amazing, what they think are amazing experiences that really amount to nothing more than chasing after the wind. Because they're acting like fools. Now, I don't want to just say this is a young people problem. This is an old people problem as well. If there's no God... If all we have are questions, then you, like the conclusion here in Ecclesiastes, you better watch out for what benefit you can get out of something. I want to I want us to look at the second one here. It comes in chapter 3. If you turn with me, chapter 3, verse 18. <clears throat> this is the next section where death shows up. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting in verse 18, he writes this. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. 
Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? The second philosophy here deals with the subject of ontology. So that's your next blank. Ontology, spelled O-N-T-O-L-O-G-Y. It has to do with our nature. I hope you saw here, what's the comparison that the writer is looking at? He's looking at the fate of men and, not women, men and the beasts, the animals. That's right. And as he looks and examines it, he sees, lo and behold, what happens to both of them? They both die. And so the conclusion is, under the sun, mankind is no better off than the animals. In fact, your life, if you think of it under the sun, your life really amounts to nothing greater than the same value as a mosquito. That's it. Both go to the same place. One of them gets there before the other, but ultimately, there is no difference. Do you see that in our world today? Does anyone know of a particular scientific theory that teaches that humans are just animals? Just came from the animals? Do you know that the theory of evolution is the cornerstone for the atheist's defense that there is no God? That, that is, by the way, their scriptures. Their scriptures are evolution. Their God is science. Because as soon as you have to examine there's a God, now there is going to be accountability to that God. But so long as you're just an animal, well, you might as well pursue whatever your desires lead you to, the same as the animals do. And in the end, there is no difference. This is a question of ontology. Again, the question, if you look at verse 21, <clears throat> is framed here because fate has no answers. Fate only has questions. Here's the question. Who knows? If the spirit of man rises upwards, and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. Who knows? Nobody knows. If we're looking under the sun, nobody has the answer to that question. All right, let's look at the, the third one. If you turn to chapter 6 now in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. I know some of you are thinking, boy, Pastor, you're going too fast today. Going too fast. It's all right, I'll slow it down. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 6. In verse 12, we're going, to find, we're going to find two different observations in one verse. Ecclesiastes 6.12. The writer says, For who knows what is good for a man in life? During the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow. Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone? I don't know if you caught this, but there were two questions, but both of them revolving around the subject of death. Two questions. The first one here, who knows what is good? This for us is the philosophy of ethics. Who knows what is good? If there is no God, there is no objective morality. If there, if there is no ultimate lawgiver, there is no objective law to which we can hold one another. Do you know, in fact, what there is? There is only what's called moral relativity, which is simply to say, whatever you think is right, is right for you. And the only answer that the atheist has is to say that the determinations that we make to understand the difference between right and wrong, they either come directly from genetics because evolution, or 
They come sociologically by the pressures of our society. And so you, if that's all we have, again, look, look with me in the text, for who knows what is good in a man's life? This is the question of ethics. That ultimately, if that is true, we are left without any grounding for justice. You and I, if there is no God, you and I are left without any objectivity to know the difference between right and wrong. Philosopher Bertrand Russell is an atheist, and he said um, that it all comes down to personal taste. That's it. Whatever you think is right could be different from the person sitting across from me, and there, there is nothing objective by which we can stand on to determine who we're accountable to or right or wrong. So under the sun, if there is no God, the question of ethics is ultimately relative, left up to us. There's another observation we can make from this passage, and it's the second question. Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone? The, the part I'm keying in here is the question, who can tell him? And this is the philosophy that we, uh, the, the body of philosophy that we call, it's a big word, epistemology. I'll spell that for you if you wanted to write it down. E-P-I-S-T-E. M-O-L-O-G-Y, epistemology. It asks the question, how do you know what you know? Like, upon what grounding are you making an appeal to truth? Well, if there is no God, look with me again at the conclusion in verse 12. Who can tell him what's going to happen? Nobody knows. All right. This is a little depressing sermon again, right? Everybody say amen. I I want to draw you back to a song that we sang earlier. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. It's the next line. Because he, because I know he holds the what? He holds the future. I can face tomorrow because he lives. So we have an answer to this question, right? Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone? Yeah, without God, you have no grounding for determining any truth. Except we know the one who has come from heaven, returned to heaven, who has conquered death. And because he lives, and because he holds the future, I can face tomorrow. Amen? All right, that was just a little breath in the middle of all this bad news. Let's continue on. We're going to turn now to chapter 8. So Ecclesiastes chapter 8. A few of the ones that we've covered so far, we've looked at egoism, ontology, ethics, and epistemology. Uh, the last two are um, actually the most difficult ones to, for us to get through it together. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, look with me starting in verse 7 and 8. Ecclesiastes 8 starting in verse 7. Since no man knows the future, who can tell him what is to come? Sounds like what we just read in chapter 6, doesn't it? Verse 8, here's the conclusion of that the the teacher gets to. No man has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the day of his death. As no one is discharged in a time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. What I want us to see here, again, there's a question that's posed in verse 7. Who knows the future? Who knows the future? The philosophy that uh, rests on that conclusion is called fatalism. Fatalism. That's the blank to number five. Fatalism. It's the philosophy that says everything in your life is predetermined. 
Everything in your life is predetermined. Do we see that today in our world? Do we see people who end up justifying sinful behavior by simply saying, hey man, I was made that way. It was predetermined for me. Who are you to judge? Because all this is just the life that I have been given. These are the cards that I've been dealt. And so there is no room for any accountability. I can justify my decisions and behavior because what else could I do? Fatalism is the philosophy that says everything in life is fated to happen whether you wanted to try to fix it or not. And so you know what you do? What should you do in that case? If you resist, it's not going to go well. So you, you need to instead, you need to just give in. Just give in if fatalism is true. And this is what we see happening in verse 8. No man has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the day of his death. There's nothing you can do. There's no hope. Do you know that 100% of all people die? It would look on the surface to say that this is true. Just in the same way nobody can contain the wind, nobody can control the day of his death. Now we're going to look at this a little more in detail as we get to our applications, but I want you to think with me just for a moment as we're on this subject of fatalism. How much, how much time do you have left on this earth? I wonder if everybody could pick two numbers in your head, all right? So I'm going to give you the first number. Just pick a number in your head uh, between um, zero and three. Pick a number. Everybody got a number, zero and three? Now put a number behind that, a number uh, zero to ten. Second number. You got those two numbers? Now as high as you could go is 39 is about the highest one that you, you could have picked. Did any, anybody pick that? Any 39s? I see a couple of hands. What, what if that's your number? What's the lowest number that you could pick? Zero, zero, right? Anybody get a low number? <laughs> you're like, I know where you're going with that, Pastor. I was picking high numbers. What if that's not years, though? What if that's days? What if that's not days? What if that's hours? You don't know, is my point. 100% out of 100% of people die. But we don't know how many days we have left. Fatalism is the incorrect conclusion of examining this truth without looking to God. If you only looked under the sun, you would be left with, you know what? Who cares then? Nothing I can do about it. 100% of people die. All right, let's look at our last text here in Ecclesiastes. There's actually one other one that we're just skipping for today, but chapter 9, if you turn with me there, chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, the teacher says, So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wicked and what they do are in God's hands. But no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifice and and those who do not. As it is with the good man, so it is with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so it is with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing. They have no further reward. And even the memory of them is forgotten. 
Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Okay, so once more, death shows up here in chapter 9. The philosophy that follows after this line of thinking is called nihilism. I'll spell that one for you. N-I-H-I-L-I-S-M. A nihilist is somebody, nihilism is the philosophy that says there is no purpose. And because there is no purpose, there is no religious obligation. There is no righteous obligation to anybody because there is no purpose. And so you know what you need to do? You need to define your own purpose. But there is no objective one. And so there is no standard for you to try to meet. So why even try at all? If you look back with me in the text, you'll see that's exactly what the teacher of Ecclesiastes is is getting at. Verse 2 says, all share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked. Man, I've been trying to be righteous my whole life. Those buddies of mine in school, though, going out, having a good time, partying up, man. Saturday, wasted on Sunday. They're not going to church. They're sleeping in. And they are living it up. And me, here I am, slaving away for Jesus. What happens to both of us? What happens to both? The righteous and the wicked, they both die. So why even bother? Why even attempt or try to be righteous at all? There is no ultimate or objective purpose, and so there is no meaning in life. We have a, a similar saying that kind of keys on, on this on our, in our house when it comes to dinner time. Have you heard this before? You get what you get, and you don't throw a fit. Yeah, there, that's a little bit of a nihilistic type of a, a attitude there, right? This is basically what you have. We need to be very careful with this because you need to remember that this is looking under the sun. This is examining life without God. The wicked and the righteous go to the same place. The good and the bad go to the same place. The clean and the unclean, they all go to the same place. And because you and I live in a world of increasing moral relativism, you will find that there is a lot less to care about. Can I I point back to the text for a minute? Look with me back in verse 6. It says, Their love, their hate, and their jealousy are gone. The things that you love and you care about, they will die with you. Those vendettas, those grudges, the things that you hate, guess what? They will die with you. And you will have nothing. You will have no part to play under the sun, if that's all there is. All right, you guys ready for some good news? (laughs) I was like, oh my gosh, yes. Okay. I want to remind you of the first observation, fate only has questions fate only has questions but god is the answer so under conclusions and applications that's what i want you to see god is the answer we're going we're to seek to answer these now and i'm, I'm going to begin by turning in my bible to john chapter 14 so if you have your bibles turn with me to john chapter 14 we're going to see that there's another question because remember fate only asks questions but god is the answer I want you to see the answer today. John chapter 14, Jesus tells his disciples, I am going to the Father to prepare a place. And if I go and prepare a place for you, that's a good thing because I will come back to take you that you will be with me. For where I am there, you will be also. In verse 5, 
Thomas, and Thomas is one of these really zealous guys. He's willing to follow Jesus. He wants to follow Jesus. Look with me, John chapter 14, verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? You got to remember, fate only asks questions. Thomas isn't thinking above the sun. Thomas is thinking under the sun. How, how, how can we know? There is no answer. Watch Jesus' answer. You ready? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I, I, want, us to, I want us to hang today on Jesus' answer. He is the way. When, when the world says there is no way, we say, we know. When, when the world asks questions like, you know what? Does the spirit of the man go up and, or like the animal, does it go down? Who knows? We say, we know. We know the answer because Jesus has told us the answer. He is the way. When the world says, we don't know what's good. When the world says, it's up to you. You define your own truth. You define what is right and wrong for yourselves. When ethics is left up to the question and there is no truth, we say, we know. We know who is the truth. And when the world says there's no, there's no hope, it's only fate, there, there, there's no difference between good and bad, all end in death, we say, we know the one who is the life. Amen? Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. <clears throat> I want us to see as well, the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes does give us a conclusion for application. And that's what we're going to build on, uh, dovetailing these two themes together. Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. <clears throat> and the answer that's found in chapter 3. So if you're still with me, turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And I, I kind of rushed past it. But there is an answer in, <clears throat> in chapter 3. And that's what we're going to conclude for this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 in verse 22. You're going to see this answer repeated a couple of times, so get used to it, all right? This is like um, um, an acquired taste, right? This is like whatever it is when you were little, you didn't like. When I was little, I didn't like mushrooms. Man, mushrooms are really good now, right? Take, takes a little time. Takes a little time to get used to it. That, that's the same thing you have here. We're going to come back to the same idea, not because I'm making it up, but because this gets repeated throughout Ecclesiastes, and you and I need to acquire a taste for it so we'll understand it. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 22. <clears throat> Here's what the teacher tells us this morning. So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work because that is his lot. Can I read that again? I want that to sink in. So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work because that is his lot. I, I want to remind you of the context here. If you go back to verse 18, he says, I, I thought as for men, God tests them. So who is it that's really in charge here? It's not the teacher. Who is it that's really in charge? It's God who's doing the testing. It's God who's in charge. The teacher happens upon the right answer though. And I want to break that down for us in three ways, and then a bonus fourth, okay? Three ways plus a bonus. <clears throat> Number one, God has determined what is best. I want you to see in verse 22, he says, I saw there is nothing better for a man. 
Listen, listen, when the Bible says that, you would do well to listen. In our world today, people will chase after all kinds of things. And there are two extremes on this that we need to avoid. Uh, in order to illustrate that for you, I need to tell you about my dogs. So a while back, Emily and I and the kids decided to go for a walk. We have these two dogs. One of them is uh, five years old. The other one is a puppy, only a couple months old. Now, when you put them both on the leash and you begin to take a walk, one of them has been on a walk before and understands that if they keep running ahead, they will choke themselves constantly. The other one wants to sniff and smell every little thing and chase it down as fast as her little paws can. And she finds the whole walk. She's choking herself. Now, what would happen if we, as the masters of these dogs, would just let them run free? What would happen to a dog in the city? They would become a dog cake, is what would happen to them. So it is for their protection that they are on a leash. Wisdom has taught the older one not to run so far ahead from where the master is holding by the way, the opposite end of that spectrum is true as well. I remember seeing a lady walking her dog. She had a big golden retriever at the park, and the dog was not having any of it. The dog just laid down. <laughs> come on, come on, and you get choked that way too. I, I want you to understand, applicationally in your life, this is true for you as well. God tells you there is nothing better than what he's about to say. But what do we do? We chase down every little sniff and hint of what we think is going to satisfy us in life. Only to find, we choke ourselves. Only to find that there's actually a leash to which God, for our good, has tied us to. The same is true for those who don't want to go. I don't want to go, God. You say that work is good. I need to enjoy my work. I'm going to sit here till something better comes along. And you'll find that as well. God says, come on, come on. The very best thing that you can do, the very best thing that wisdom teaches, like our older dog, is that you try to keep right in step with the master so that when the master moves faster, what do you do? You move faster. When the master stops, what do you do? You stop as well. God has determined for us that which is best. Uh, there's a passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I'll just read it to you. It's chapter 7, verse 10. He says, Do not say, Why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. That's the person who's just sitting there saying, I don't want to go forward. I want to stay where I'm at. While the master has said, No, come on, come on. I've got a purpose and a plan for you. Don't give up. You don't know the numbers that God has for you. Right? Maybe it's 39. Maybe it's one or two. We don't know what the, they are. But God is the one who has determined the pacing in our lives and has showed us that which is best. There's a story at the end of John's gospel of Peter being reinstated. Are you familiar with this? You remember Peter? He was the guy who said, Lord, I'll never betray you. And then three times, what does old Pete say? I never knew him. I don't know who that is. And then on the third time, what does he hear? You know, you know the story, right? The rooster crows. The text teaches us in, in Mark that he looks and he makes eye contact with Jesus. Then he weeps bitterly for having denied his Lord. Well, the end of John gives us the second half of that story. As Jesus resurrected meets Peter, he tells Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, of course, Lord, you know I love you. He says, well, feed my sheep. 
three times Jesus asks him, and so three times Jesus reinstates Peter. But then this happens, and I want to read to you what a uh, part of the story. It's John chapter 21. Listen to what goes on here between Jesus and Peter and how that references John. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Now, church tradition teaches us that Peter was crucified, that what Jesus said came true. They undressed him, they led him where they didn't want to go, and they nailed Peter to a cross as well. You may know church tradition also teaches us that Peter requested to be crucified upside down, thinking it not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus. But watch what happens to Peter in that moment when Jesus says this. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus during the supper and said, Lord, who's, uh, who's going to betray you? So that's John. When Peter saw him, he, he asked, Lord, what about him? Yeah, I, I get it. You're going to have a death for me to glorify you, but what, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. You know, there there are some people who have got a little bit longer uh, numbers, a little bit larger numbers than you. We don't know who they are, but who does? Not a trick question. Who knows how much longer you have? God does. What we need to do is make sure that we're recognizing God is the one who's determined what is best. And so therefore we, this is the fill in the blank of your sermon notes, we need to recapture God's pacing in our lives. I I hear this from folks. I know there's frustration over wanting to do this or wanting to do that. I I had the opportunity to counsel somebody last night who, who is so frustrated with God because all of the things that they were hoping and wanting for in service to God are not happening. Why are they not happening? You know what that's like? That's like that little puppy wanting to run, run. God has a reason. And you have an expiration date that may be different from the person next, next to you. We need to recapture God's pacing for He is the one who knows what is best for us. This coming out of Psalm 30, uh, 139. The psalmist says, My frame was not hidden from you when I made you in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, you saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Did you hear that? God has a number of days that are planned for you, and they're written. They're right there. God knows it, but you and I don't. And so if we're going to get on board with living above the sun, that there truly is a God, first thing we need to do is recognize he determines what's best, and so we have to recapture his pacing in our lives. You guys with me on that? You see that here in chapter 3? Next. Verse 22 says, So I thought I saw that there's nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work. Now we're going to have a whole Sunday where we actually talk about work, but here's the conclusion I want you to see here. God has designed our function. God has designed our function. He made you to work. 
Now, sin has corrupted that, but the function still exists. You were made to work. Retirement is tough, you know. Some of you are like, yeah, it is. Retirement is tough because if you go into it thinking, I don't need to work anymore, you will find that part of you dies. Part of you that God designed you for is to work. Now, you might need to reshift that. You might need to tweak it. But work has always been part of the function of the human creature. In fact, I'm going to read this to you out of Genesis chapter 2. So real early in the book, right? Chapter 2, right in the beginning, verse 15. It says this, And the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. God is the one who has designed our function. Now, Jesus helps us to understand this even better. The Apostle Paul, when he teaches the church in Corinth how to make sense of work, is going to speak to those who serve masters above them. They serve as both employees, kind of servants, who have to do what their masters say. But listen to what Paul says. This is Colossians chapter 3, in verse 23 and 24. He says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Hear me now. This is the last thing he says. It is Christ who you are serving. How great is that? How great is that? Now, some of you may have jobs where you end up having to just put on the uniform and go to work and do the job. You may need to rethink how you go about that job or you may need a whole different job altogether because what you need to find is the ability for you to enjoy your work. God's the one who designed you for it. And so we need to make sure that we do it right. Uh, There's a song that my wife uh, played for me on the radio, country tune called, I think it's called By Dirt. Has anyone heard this song on the radio? Any country music lovers in church this morning? Three of you. Awesome. Okay, thank you for that. I just read to you the lyric. It's, it's a lot of wisdom in this song. It says, buy dirt. So that's advice. Uh, find the one you can't live without. Get a ring. Let your knee hit the ground. Right? That's good, good advice. Right? This is, this is wisdom. Here's the next line, though. Do what you love, but call it work. How great is that? I can remember my dad being like, I got to go fishing. Oh, man. Got to go fishing. Hard work. Going fishing. Hunting, I got to go put up tree stands. I got to go scout out some trails. Man, tough work. You know what he did? He fooled all of us because he loved doing all those things. Listen to the teacher of Ecclesiastes. The Lord knows there's nothing better for you than for you to enjoy your work because he has designed your function. Because of that, you and I and some of us here, we might need to redeem our work. So that's the fill in the blank under that second observation. We need to redeem our work as an offering to the Lord. That may mean for you that you need to make some changes. I would encourage you to do that. If you cannot say with integrity that I am serving Jesus Christ, you're probably doing something wrong. So whatever changes need to be made there, because you live with a God above the sun... We need to make sure that our work is a joy. Number three, and I'm wrapping up here. He says, because that is your lot in verse 22. So I saw there's nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work because that is his lot. 
This word lot is a Hebrew word that means your, your parcel. It's like this is what you get. This is your portion. Um, a better word translated for this would be reward. This is your reward. Amen. Here, here's the fill in the blank. God has designed our destiny because he's the one who will give us our reward. The Westminster Catechism says this in answer to the question, what is the chief end of man? Have you guys heard this before? What is the chief end of man? What's the purpose of man? I love it. You want to know what it is? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the chief end of man, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is your reward. When you are able to enjoy your work on this earth and glorify God as though you're serving Christ, you are receiving your reward and you are storing up treasures in heaven where your inheritance is being kept. So some of you may need to rejoice, is my last blank. Therefore rejoice by walking and working with God. Listen, we were studying death this morning. The writer of Ecclesiastes says there's basically a bunch of different philosophies that say it's hopeless when we look at death because everybody dies. But we follow the one who conquered death. And by following Jesus, we can make sure that we understand he is the one who determines what's best. He helps us reframe our work for that's our function. And we can rejoice in that knowing we're walking in step with him. I want you to think of my two little dogs when you leave here and think, I wonder if I'm running ahead or if I'm lagging behind or if I have learned how to keep step with the master in life. Now that would be the end of the sermon, but I told you there was a bonus. This is for all those who don't yet know the Lord. If that's you this morning, if you know about Jesus, but you have never given your life to Jesus, there is a verse that we covered that I need to draw your attention to. And this comes in chapter 9. So just as we wrap up here on this last final bonus point, Ecclesiastes chapter 9 says this in verse 4. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Did you find that? In the, in the Bahamas where I work, they, they simplified that saying to say, where there's life, there's hope. Where there's life, there's hope. So whenever a loved one would be sick or in the hospital and you didn't know what to say, you would say, where there's life, there's hope. I want you to know that that's because our God is diligent in mercy. That's the very last bonus one here. And number four, our God is diligent in mercy. He is continually offering for you the opportunity and so what is it you need to do? You need to therefore repent and find that there is hope for the living. If that's you this morning, I hope that this is an eye-opening message to know that death is a reality and you yet have hope if you're among the living. There is still time for you to repent and find true satisfaction by knowing the one who is the way, help me out, and the truth and the, and the life. Let's pray this morning.